podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the Wisdom Cricket Weekly podcast in association with Las Who. Las Who gives fans the opportunity to book live video chats with an incredible roster of sports stars. Las Who is a new must-have app for any sports fan. Whether you want to book your hero for a one-to-one conversation, give a truly unique gift to a friend or family member, organise a keynote speaker for your event, or even some inspirational words ahead of your local club's big game, Las Who have got you covered. By downloading the Las Who app, users can search for and book hero speakers from around the world within minutes, including a wide range of current and ex-cricketers. The app allows you to set an agenda, ensuring everyone is prepared and at ease and that every minute of every call is spent on the topics you are most interested in. And with no travel time or additional costs, organising a Las Who experience couldn't be simpler. We've got friend of the show, Crickviz analyst Ben Jones with us. I'm Yaz Rana and today I'm joined by the magazine editor of Wisden Cricket Monthly, Joe Harmon, and the editor-in-chief of Wisden Cricket Monthly, Phil Walker. England supremo Chris Silverwood unveiled his 17-man squad for this winter's Ashes. Um, the ECB statement was at pains to say that this was the strongest available squad there were recalls for Zach Crawley and Don Best no room for Dom Sibley Matt Parkinson Ben Folkes or Saki Mood. Um, I think it's fair to say that there was one big collective shrug at the announcement uh, I wonder if this is the earliest England fans on the whole have given up hope I received a text at 12.05 genuinely from a mate who said we'll be lucky to walk away 5-0 with that squad no last time was probably worse do you reckon yeah yeah last time was worse because there were some players in there that people um, didn't really, even really know let alone back <laughs> I think last time was even worse okay. although that would people not knowing players cause a bit of excitement because they might yeah, be better think... than they actually are yeah but that is that is a, possibly a false position to, to adopt anyway isn't it well Joe it isn't the, the most exciting squad but would you have done much different well I was going to ask who did your friend expect them to pick it was just more the realisation of this is what we've got right because I'd already got I'd already got to that point <laughs> <laughs> that's sort of my job yeah um yeah, I, I, there's, there's a few you could quibble on. Um, I would certainly have gone Parkinson over Bess. Uh, you could say Folks is a bit unlucky, but I also Bairstow's got a Ashes Test 100 over there in his back pocket. I can see that's potentially useful. And to be honest, those calls, the reserve keeper and the second choice spinner when the first choice spinner might not even play, they're not going to decide the series. I think England have got what they got. And uh, Joe Root's going to have to do something pretty masterful again. Uh, yeah, the concern is the, the bowling attack. We got—I don't know if you're going to come to it. We got an interesting email from someone. The batting who, as well. Back to problem. Fielding's <laughs> <laughs> not great either. The catches. But I think I think <laughs> worst slip fielders in in the in the game. Apart from Bangladesh, there are loads of problems. But I think that the it was not very long ago that we were talking about suddenly England have got some fast bowlers who might be able to do a bit of damage in Australia and kind of one by one, we've lost them and now it's kind of Mark Wood flying the flag for for pace. But um, yeah, I think we got an email from someone saying that. He was listening to previous shows, which is always slightly problematic. When from, a, from a year ago, <laughs> from a yeah. year ago, and we were talking quite brightly about England's batting hopes at that point. I think he'd said kind of what what's gone wrong. Well, England have had uh, they've, they've only played uh, the best two teams in the world in their last ten or so Test matches, and a lot of guys who we had a lot of hopes for earlier in the year have struggled, understandably so. Um, that, that's basically what's happened and also we had, we had another question from Alec Watson who was talking about the obsession about uh, 90 mile per hour X-Factor bowlers to win in Australia we had three of them a year ago and at the moment only one's fit 
Um, before I go to you, Ben, Phil, you, you had suggested earlier that you weren't so downbeat. Oh, look, I mean, you, a, a case can be made. I've made no notes on this, right? I haven't really thought about it. I think the way that you summed it up was bang on, actually. There was a sort of collective shrug. I felt um, slightly, slightly sad because it did really bring into focus that they could have really t- taken out their uh, a bowling attack that certainly seen bowling attack that could have really made some some dents, albeit on some pretty dead, nasty drop-in pitches, which we should come to later, I think. Uh, there could have been a case made, obviously, if you'd had the, the best all-rounder in the world out there, one of the best fast bowlers around, and as well, you know, a potential bolter in someone like Ollie Stone. None of them are going to be there. Stokes, we possibly, possibly might lack half of the series, but that's probably pie in the sky. So, yeah, it, it felt, looking at that squad a bit demoralizing instinctively and there is an absence of color and fantasy in there and we all have our own prejudices and we all have our own hobby horses if you like you know and people can legitimately say well you know why is there not a wrist spinner there and why is there not why is there not a proper stroke maker in there you know who's who's made a few runs out in Australia and plays the quicks well on flat tracks we can all kind of make these kinds of cases um but I don't think there's ever. I don't think there's a kind of not taking Gower to India in '93 scandal. I don't see the MCC being bombarded by you know furious members and votes of no confidence in the selectors because I don't see that there was this this kind of you know sort of disappointingly flat humdrum approach. Really, I think they've done what they can do. Overall, I'd have personally liked to have seen Parkinson in there in the 17. It's worth pointing out the caveat that they will all be there anyway that they'll all be playing against one another in various warm-up games in the build-up build to it. So, you know, if Parkinson goes out there and takes seven or eight, then he will be moved into that squad, probably played at Sydney and take North 170. And it, it, it's frustrating because that conversation that we'd have had a year or so ago would have been legitimately fine. You know, in Ollie Pope and Zach Crawley, this time last year, you had two quality young players coming through. You had uh, a cohort of, of quality quicks, um, and you had in, in Joe Root, a player who just needed to find a bit of form. Well, now he's found form and, and, and a bit more on top of it, and yet you feel like he is he is going to be going out there as a, as a, as a lone figure. I'm, I'm pleased that Butler's signed up for it, and I think he's, he's probably owed a bit of an apology on this show and elsewhere, because there is this assumption, this kind of lazy assumption, because he had been the first to speak out of out of the group and say, look, you know, we're not going to go through this and yet in, unless we get a few concessions. And even up to last week, we were saying, well, Butler might not play. Butler probably won't go. Casually, because he's, he's a white ball icon. Well, he is there. And my personal feeling, and I've been saying it since last summer, is that Butler in Australia is a defining moment in the bloke's career. And if you are looking for crumbs of comfort, scintillas of optimism, then Butler at six or seven in Australia, when the ball is not doing too much laterally, that is a potentially interesting scenario for England. The the obvious glaring problem is how on those pitches, uh, and that is a problem, a big problem. There's they are characterless pitches now in Australia. Uh, how the hell the hell the hell the hell they are going to take twenty wickets while simultaneously batting dry, long, and kind of bloodlessly for five six sessions. It's a hard one to square. It's a hard one to square. Um, one tiny, tiny, tiny aside, Australia aren't that good either. 
So it really is a scrap between two very fallible and very vulnerable teams. India won there without having their gun quick available for much of the series last year. Ben, I think a lot of the frustration stems from England have won one test match in nine and keeping the same group of players when you're not actually winning is a bit frustrating. And I think you can, in red ball and white ball cricket now, kind of point to Chris Silwood's time as selector, not just coach, but just, just as selector, as it not being particularly imaginative. He's not picked anyone who wasn't picked already by Ed Smith previously. And I think if you go back, a selection like James Bracey was quite interesting. James Bracey was probably one of the most Ed Smith, Ed Smith picks in that he was picked for an England Lions squad of very, very, very little, uh, kind of stayed around the England group, then does well on an interest squad warm-up and then basically stays around the England group, changes selector, he's still there. You kind of wonder, Chris Wilford was around County Cricket for a long time, If he does he not have a strong opinion about a batter who's out of the England group? Um, what, what do you think about the kind of lack of, I guess, colour in the, in the selections? I guess it's, it's hard in a way, isn't it? Because, I mean, Chris Wilford f- physically can't watch much County Cricket anymore, which is, I think... Partly why it was so absurd that they got rid of the Ed Smith role. I mean, I, I think it was... You, you can have your opinions on Ed Smith as a selector. Um, I broadly was quite in favour of him. I think he did a pretty good job. And actually, when you look back at his record, obviously cricketers win games of cricket, selectors don't. But I think what he did across a good period of for English Test cricket at home and away from home, you know, they, they didn't stand up. But I don't think that was really on him. I think he did what he could. But to get rid of the role... I think is is a really a really a really big issue for English cricket going forward for this exact reason that Silverwood's now in a position where if he doesn't already have those strong opinions about guys in county cricket he's not going to make them now because he can't watch anything because he's the only guy who's coaching every format of England's you know international cricket and meant to be picking the team so he's speaking to the scouts and getting all those opinions but you don't get that instinct that you hope that these guys who are paid the big bucks to pick the England team that's what you're paying for you're paying for their knowledge and expertise to look at Zach Crawley you know making 60 on a you know on a wet water at Canterbury and thinking actually no he's got something you need you need that you need that instinct to come through and Silverwood's not going to get that opportunity one thing I would just take issue is I don't think it's fair to say that he's been unimaginative because in I think in a, a quite high proportion of his tests away from home they've not picked a spinner now you cannot you can say that's badly on badly imaginative but it is still quite a strong tactic to say you know what none of our spinners are any good we're just going to pick the seamers it, it may well be wrong personally i think is you know some of those flat pitches in new zealand to go in with five seamers was a big tactical error but at the very least they're trying things and you know ed smith tried things by picking wrist spinners and chucking jason roy to the top of the order some of them are success some of them not silverwood's tried that it's just that the way he's being imaginative is I think quite appropriately, quite boring. <laughs> it's like I'm not picking another right oh, military medium. I do just think the, the the fundamental reason why I think the response to the squad announcement has been so meh, and everyone's kind of shrugged their shoulders and depressedly gone, yeah, we're probably going to lose five nil, is because there are so many caveats to the squad announcement as well, and everyone kind of goes, yeah, we know the squad was a, it was a difficult situation to put a squad together in in terms of getting them out there for COVID reasons. That's clearly a big caveat on picking the best players. And they've done well to get to this position where they're all going. And we also have the caveat of all the injuries. So you're kind of there being like, it feels quite callous to instinct to like kick off and say, you know, why we're going to get battered again. Whereas actually just kind of a dry acceptance of, yeah, this is probably the best we've got. They're not that good. It feels a bit more, a bit more appropriate. They'll probably, they'll probably, little, I, I reckon they'll win a test for what it's worth. I there is also silver lining. This could have been a hell of a lot worse. I mean, if you look at that squad and go, there, 
I mean, there'd have been a, there'd have been some new names, but I mean, we were talking about Joe Root possibly not going uh, this time last week, two weeks ago. So you know, at least it should be a contest, even if it's not one that many of us think will England will come out on top from. Can I ask you, Joe? So you'd be tempted by Parkinson for Bess if you were picking it. Uh, I would do that. Yeah. 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 Any seamers? Um. Saki Mahmood, maybe? Saki Mahmood is, is the one that jumps out. The, the squad. How, how is Saki's side? That's the, that was the only thing, wasn't it? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I mean, he was, he's, they've not said he's not fit, have they? But yeah, but maybe that is a, is a concern. I mean, I would have been certainly tempted to add him or potentially have him maybe over Overton. I don't know. The squad was smaller than I was expecting as well, which is, again, a part of the reason why I think everyone's a bit like meh, because you would, even if it had been 19 and you had, say, Parkinson or Mahmood or a, a or I mean, Vince would have got a lot of people angry, but have also excited people or proper wildcard Livingston, then there would have at least been a little bit more kind of something to it. That's a really good point, actually, because uh, you had larger home squads this summer. So it's basically just the home squad plus, uh, I think it's just Crawley well, sometimes and Sometimes there were 17-person squads yeah. at home. So I, think, I don't think there's many people in the squad who people were like, oh God, I can't believe they picked them. I think it's the squad that you expected just minus a couple of kind of more fun picks in a way. Um. On Parkinson, I know that, yeah, I'm very much in the spiritual home of Matthew Parkinson here. I don't need to talk about how good he is. But one thing I, I want to just mention is we did a bit of um, a bit of quite detailed research into the guys that could be picked for the England squad um, at Crick Viz. And one thing that we found with Parkinson is that we, or we talk about the idea that finger spinners can go out there and bowl dry and bowl, you know, bowl 35 overs in a day and be accurate. Now, Jack Leach can do that. We know we know he is incredibly methodical and accurate and, and, and reliable in that. Um, but if you're taking Don Bess, Don Bess is not accurate. He doesn't hold up an end. I know he did once in South Africa early enough in his career that it became a narrative that he could do that. His economy is worse than Matt, Matt Parkinson's. And Parkinson is essentially the most accurate wrist spinner in first-class cricket at the moment. He is extremely good at hitting a spot. Now... I think it's just nice to make that point and say that he's not this one-dimensional magic bolt ball bowler who, you know, lives on GIFs online and, you know, you see the good stuff and you don't see the, the drag downs. He doesn't really bowl those drag downs. He is a very accurate bowler. And I think if you were looking, one of the ways that England are going to have to go in this series is if they don't, if they pick a spinner, then all of a sudden the balance of the, of the team goes a little bit and you're going to have Chris Wokes at number seven and things are going to look a bit wonky. And if you're going to do that and you're going to make those sacrifices to have more bowlers, having a bit of variety, i.e. Parkinson and Leach is fine. They turn the ball the same way. That's okay. It's not the, not against the law. I think that would give them a little bit more of an aggressive cutting edge. And that's not because Parkinson, yeah, like I say, drag down, drag down magic ball. He is just a very, very good, reliable red ball bowler. And it's, and I think it is a mistake. And they've, I think they've made it easier for them to not get criticized. Cause I think it's a, it's a squad that's almost picked to respectfully lose in, in that respect to go over there and, you know, really try our hardest, a bit like a 17, 18. Whereas Pitt Parkinson, he could get whacked. He could get destroyed, but I think it would, give you a chance of winning a test I just thought uh, Chris Silverwood was accidentally quite funny on Parkinson's admission he said uh, Parky's an interesting option too he's a wicket taker and he's something a little bit different but unfortunately he didn't get the nod this time um, which is quite amusing the thing is um, though the thing is with Parkinson um, we can all you know we can all look at it we can all drill down we can all make our, our suppositions but he was with England for what three months last winter in conditions that were, would you would have thought would be anywhere in the world, that's that's where he would want to bowl, and he bowled five overs in a in a practice game, and he was there for three months. Um, he is a well-established white ball wrist spinner in twenty-over cricket in particular, 
and uh, he's not not made Morgan's cut for his team either. They don't know what to do with him aside from leave him out. That's 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 their conclusion at this point. Now it may evolve and change, and a few more high profile performances next summer and so on may change it again. But as it stands, and they will have faced him day after day after day, and they'd have done all the all the research and all the data and so on. Um, they're not they're not they're not ignoring Warn here, you know. Um, the subtext could be this is English cricket playing it safe yet again, a kind of an echo, say, of um, the 06-07 tour when Giles played instead of Panasar because, you know, Fletcher wanted a player who could catch and bat nine. So that's why Best gets in there ahead of Parkinson. It could be another echo of that English cricket playing it conservative and playing it safe. Possibly there's, there's a narrative there. But I, I don't think they are deliberately cutting their nose off here, you know, and they, they will have watched him far more closely than any of us. And they'd have, and the batsmen who make a big decision, they have a big influence on these things. Ollie Robinson made his test debut because he they faced him for the week building up to Laws, and they said he's got to play. These boys would have been facing facing uh, Matt Parkinson at that level uh, for months and months and months. But who's the one boy who is probably having the biggest say over that? It's probably you know Jay Root, who actually quite a good player of spin. So if you're waiting along for an English spinner who can challenge Joe Root, you're going to be waiting 30, 40 years. So I think you've got to, at some point you've got to say, lads, he's the best, second best we've got. Just really quickly, the other end of the spectrum in terms of exciting picks, and I know it's it's maybe my most boring opinion, is that I'm now a, a big Sibley guy. Um, I'm quite, you know, quite distressed about it as a turn of events. But I think it's a really poor decision to not take Sibley to Australia because the one thing that he is really good at is seeing off the new ball and he is extremely good at batting long and yeah he might get roasted a couple of times by Pat Cummins but if you're thinking that Hamid and Burns and Crawley aren't going to have that problem as well then you're fooling yourself in Australia the first 30, 30 overs the ball swings and then it does nothing so if you pick openers who are going to blunt the ball and leave the ball outside of stump. Sibley has one of the highest averages outside of stump of anyone in the data era. It's the last 15, 20 years of test cricket. He is brilliant outside of stump. He doesn't nick off, really, for an opening batsman yeah. in England. So actually, pick pick that guy and then solve the problems down the order. I, even, even if he goes and plays one test and then gets dropped, I think I just think... Are you saying you'd pick him? As I, you'd, t- you'd take him, but you'd also pick him for the first test? Yeah, I'd pick him for the first test. Yeah. I think, I, I mean, I, I genuinely really hope I'm proved wrong about Zach Crawley, but I think the idea that Zach Crawley has got a technique for Australia, we said that about James Vince on the last tour, and he did fine. Also, also played the greatest test innings of all time at Brisbane. But I think the idea that just because you're a back foot player means you're going to do really well in Australia is a little bit of a sneaky fallacy that English cricket often falls back on. Crawley may smash it out there. But I think it's a hell of a gamble to think that the lad who averages 30 in first-class cricket, just just because you've spotted something and he's had one incredible innings against Pakistan, I would rather back the lad who went to South Africa last time and had that incredible partnership with Stokes and batted all day and batted long and set up that win on the final day. I just think they had a me- they had a method there and they've been speaking about it for two years. Bat big, bat want, bat long, old-fashioned, conservative Tory test cricket. That was the model. And and they've and they've basically said nah Hass is going to go and I don't I, for as much as I love Hasib Hamid I don't think anyone's expecting him to make big runs in Australia with those low hands and an average of less than thirty against pace in first class cricket I'm I'm very sceptical Joe I was going to ask you about Crawley um, the central contracts were released this week and Crawley not in the team averaging eleven in 2021 he has one and and Hasib Hamid doesn't have one. 
Do you think that suggests that he's going to play that first test match? And and, and do you think that's the right thing if, if he does? Um, I don't think he'll play the first test. And I'm not I'm not really against the fact that they took him. I, I can... I can see some sense in it over Sibley and Crawley. I'd marginally go Crawley, I think, in terms of how I would take. Um, I was surprised to see him get a contract. I think that that is a slightly odd message to send out after the year he's had. I mean, you, you, in six months, we could say what a, what a genius move it was to give a guy who's averaged, what, 11 in test cricket over the year and to show confidence in him, and then he comes good. But at the moment, given the fact he's not in the white ball setup, it looks odd that, that he's got one, I think. He, he made 60-odd, didn't he, in the... Johannesburg Test match. No, in the ODI series that Stokes was involved with. Yes, yeah. yes. Um, and after his two six seven, albeit he was obviously buzzing, he went and smashed a fifty ball hundred for oh, Kent and good, so on. Good white ball player. Yeah, I think against Shaheen as well. Was, yeah, yeah. I, I was quite pleased to see his name in that list personally. For what it's worth, um, he's had the mother of bad runs, and it might carry on, and um, he might be a failed Test player, but. This is a lad that 12 months ago, everybody sat around saying, oh, he's special. I interviewed Ted Dexter. He says he's the best young player I've seen in years. He says he's the best player I've seen since Joe Root, when Joe Root came through, and he looks absolutely marvellous. Everybody was saying it. Young, old, black, white, man, woman, everyone's saying he's class. And the numbers have been horrific since, no question. But what do you do? If, if you're the England selectors, what do you do? You look at a player that everybody's backed and they've backed him hard and he's, what, 23, 24? Yeah, 23. And he clearly has a natural ball-striking talent that can be converted across into into white ball cricket as well. So why why not back the bloke? For the sake of a few quid, why not back the bloke? Why not say... You know, you are a part of our future, not just in red ball cricket, but in white ball cricket as well, potentially. Uh, that will make him feel so much better about life. And if you believe that there is a player in there, then why not try and find every every which way to try and drag that player back out of his slump? I think I, I agree. And I think that that does stack up to a point. And I think this will be, you know, one, it was still to be judged. But I, I can see why they've done it. I think it is the issue or one of the issues of Silverwood's role, which I think none of us agree with that he's, that he's both selector and head coach, that he is always going to be open to accusations of uh, showing too much loyalties to players who are part of the group because he is the head coach. And, and, and Butch has talked about this before that they should be performing completely different roles and those two conflict with each other. Um, and I think there is going to be an inclination for Silverwood to give some players too many chances because he is so close to them as the coach. And I think, it's just it's just a completely unnecessary issue that England have created for themselves by by setting the hierarchy up in this place or basically having no hierarchy other than Silverwood. It's just it, it it seemed a really odd decision at the time, and as every week goes by, it seems more and more odd. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's sorry, go go for it, Ben. No, I was just going to say Smith was far from an idiot, but in some respects, he was a useful idiot. If you go with that line of like people could dump dump all their problems with a useful genius, he was a useful a, a useful maverick genius. Um, but I, I I think to an extent that was actually quite a useful role for the ECB and, Angus, and for English cricket generally to be able to be like, oh, it was you know quirky Ed Smith probably you know that that's that's the main issue. With, at the moment, 
there's only two guys in English cricket who have any, you know, to the public facing people have any power, and it's Root and Silverwood, and one of them's having one of the greatest ever years any player's ever had. So you're not yeah. going to criticise him. Silverwood's going to take a lot of stick. Always- and Angus, Angus Fraser said this to Taha for the piece he did on the kind of the history of the England selectors and, and where they've gone. That Fraser said, yeah, well, we're fully aware that we are there to take the flak so the captain and coach can can deflect some of it. And that is a perfectly functional part of the job. And, you know, it's not always fair. Sometimes it's unjust, but that's just how it goes. And now it's just too much of it is is aimed at one bloke who a lot of people have reservations of he's good enough for either role, let alone both. Mm, hearing you guys talk about Crawley, I do think that we should probably be, uh, I guess that's not a particularly boring selection, given the year he's had. That's true. So, but we all knew it was going to happen. That. We, we knew yeah, we, that, and, and also, that's true. also, at the risk... Uh, of further destroying what's left of my reputation, right? Not only has Hamid is clearly a gamble of a selection, but Dan Lawrence is also a gamble of a selection. <laughs> now, all right, get the, get your klaxon out, whatever. <laughs> but it is. If we're talking about whether it's safe or not, to take Lawrence, Hamid and Crawley, you, know, you can't really be accused of being ultra-conservative if, you've t- if you're taking those three. You're taking them on talent. You're not taking them on results. Now, or they've been pushed into that, into Lawrence's, that corner. Lawrence's results with the Lions, though, would have, would have had to come into that conversation, right? I'm glad that you said that, Joe, because if I had, I'd get it in the neck again. But yeah, <laughs> the last time he was out there, he literally averaged 100, right? And, yeah. he, took, and he took a good Australia A team down for 130-odd Admitted on, on day one of that test match. Admittedly, so did your boy Sibley. He also got 100 on that day. But, but he... But Lawrence made 125, 197, and a couple of other big runs in the in the ODIs as well, in the one day equivalents as well. So that kind of technique in England, you think, mm, sure, a lot of moving parts, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. That kind of technique and that ball striking ability in Australia, then mm. you kind of think, all right, there might be something in that. Mm. Yeah, we, we we will talk more specifically about the makeup of the England team in the weeks to come. But I really, really hope that England don't just have the same balance to the side they've had this summer where they've especially when they've only got one all round in the squad in Chris Wokes which the, the balance of the side has basically been all rounder at seven plus four bowlers I really do want to see England at least for some test matches have six bats keeper four bowlers anyway, we'll have plenty do of you have that there. power? Pardon? Do you have that power yet? He's what getting power? there He's getting there Winston Supremo <laughs> <laughs> Can I just say really, really quickly I think that one of the you know, coming into the Ashes, we know that over the last few years it's become a little bit cool in some ways to be like, oh, you know, the Ashes is rubbish. And the phony war stuff is still absolutely tedious as hell. But... Do you know what's when, just as tedious? The... People moaning about the phony war. We've been <laughs> waiting for you to bring this up. Well, I'm moaning <laughs> about... we waiting for you to bring this up. I'm moaning about the moaning about the phony war now. So I, I, I think people are going to go back the other way. I'm preempting the backlash to the backlash to the didn't, backlash. Didn't you tweet the other day sort of cancel the Ashes? All right, I know you're... The other 12 hours ago... Wedged in your cheek, for sure. But this is not on you, Ben Jones. It's not on you. But it does drive me up. All the phony war, the phony, phony war. Like when phonies on both sides sort of try to dephone themselves by calling out phonyism on the other side and it's thus perpetuating the phony war. Where are you on this scale? Me, I'm just indifferent. <laughs> I'm angrily indifferent. Just right, just right in the middle. Just absolutely perfect. What I was going to say um, was that the phony war is boring, and I don't care whether it's annoying, Phil. I'm, I'm, I'm a, I'm a, you know, annoying, annoying cricket hipster. People who person. get annoyed with it annoy me. Well, exactly. That's what I'm saying. I know I'm irritating you, but what I was going to say is that on the first morning of the Ashes, wherever the hell it ends up being, because who knows where that's going to be, I will be as excited as anyone in the world. This is because it. it's the it, only show in Because town. it's the Ashes and it's brilliant. Well, World Cup before then. But it's, it'll be good, no matter what squad we pick and we lose 5-0. Rob Wildman asks, is there any hope whatsoever of Ben Stokes making an appearance in the Ashes? His tweet today, yesterday, seemed a step towards a return. 
I think this is quite interesting. So on Thursday, the ECB released a statement saying that Stokes had undergone a second operation in his dodgy finger and it included the line, he will now undergo an intensive period of rehabilitation for the next four weeks under the supervision of the ECB's medical team. For a guy who's taking an indefinite break on mental health grounds, I thought it was quite odd to give such a specific time frame, which also happens to be roughly the time when the squad travels to Australia. Um, yeah. That is a fair point. Um, I mean, I thought it was revealing that the picture that he posted yesterday uh, where he said it was the first time he'd been able to get his his little finger around the bat handle since March or April. Yeah, so when he played for England. So he's captain England in that time. Um, That must have been tough. Mm. I mean, I'm I'm not a batting expert, (laughs) but if you can't hold a bat, that's going to be pretty... Pretty tricky. Since you knew backlift, though, you're, you're <laughs> <just> <laughs> That's true. Um, stat to get you all excited. England haven't taken 20 wickets in a Gabba test match since 1986. Yeah, well, it, you know, they had, <laughs> Australia hadn't lost at the Gabba since the 80s, and that, yeah. that's already gone. So, so yeah, it's a time for records to go Absolutely. down. Just in 86-7, England didn't have any proper quicks. And in 10-11, they didn't have any proper quicks either. That's all I'll say. But, but in answer to the, the actual Stokes question, will he make any appearances? Phil, you were saying earlier you think you wouldn't be surprised if he... If he Crops up I, at, at I, some I feel, stage. I feel like we've been here before. Um, I, I don't think we have actually. I feel like we have to tread very carefully yeah. around around the subject with with Ben Stokes. Um, uh, it was the talk of the town last week at the cricket writers' nonsense. Um, and you know, I was around uh, this weekend. I saw some people. They were all asking, "Is he going to play? Is he going to play?" What I mean is that we've been here before. That's that was the four years ago. That was the same yeah. sort of conversation. Um, I don't think there's any doubt. About the uh, the, um, the, the the authenticity of, of what he's been going through, um, it has been confused somewhat by by the, the the finger thing and the ECB statement. Not like them to slightly kind of conflate two different issues and and, and end up with with a bit of a mesh. Uh, I would not be surprised. I would not be shocked if at some point he features before now and. What would it be? The middle of January. Um, I would not be. I would not be shocked. Uh, but if he if he can't make it, then of course people respect that, and and you know you just hope to see him again in an England shirt at some point next year. Um, he will. He will obviously feel immensely dutiful towards Joe Root on a cricketing level because of what happened last time, and and Root was out there on his own, you know denuded of his best man as we know um Stokes and Root go back to when they were 10 year old so so he will feel on a certain level and as the story you know hits up and we get to that point he wouldn't be a human being if he didn't start getting excited and then of course he realizes I might still yet be able to influence matters possibly Look, it's so much speculation, and we shouldn't. We should park the Ben Stokes story from here on in. But it's 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 it was an interest. My, yeah. I I thought ah, I, just like everyone else, I thought oh this is interesting. Now you know, as he sent that message out without discussing it with Harvey Fairbrother, his agent, and the ECB, possibly. But it seemed like a. If you want to read something into it, then there's enough to be read into into that moment. Yeah, for sure. Um, and if he is if he, if he is just physically holding a bat at the moment, then it suggests that he's possibly getting back into that kind of spirit with the game, you know. And it's it's also possible that what's happened with his finger has impacted on his mental health, and vice versa. I mean, you know, a cricket is nothing without their fingers, right? So you know, that's his livelihood in his hand. 
So it's possible that, that coming out of the side physically may actually help him psychologically as well. Look, it's all speculation and we shouldn't really talk about it and we just wish him well, you know, but uh, but yeah, I wouldn't. I think my antenna went up just like everybody else's did. It was just that, it was that sensation of, in 1718 when there was that picture that someone snapped of him at the at the airport yeah do you know that was my fault that was my fault so yeah i was well, gonna call you out on that it was i couldn't quite remember the details it was felix actually felix's mate felix white's mate saw him at heathrow sent a photo to felix this was before felix was massive in cricket and so he sent it to me and obviously i've never been massive in cricket but he sent it to me he said what do you think about this what do you think about that so I kind of, I'd had a drink and I just popped it on the Twitters. Absolute scurrilous stuff. I shocking. did not know that. You, you, I merely person, said, you were the person who I merely the stated a fact, Ben Stokes um, at Heathrow with his big England cricket bag on his yeah. back. Yeah. And, um, and, he, and he did fly out to play cricket just in New Zealand Royal North Australia. <laughs> just somewhere else. <laughs> I feel like I've just, you know, uncovered a Watergate here. <laughs> <Just> <laughs> no, I mean, it, it is out there, Ben. Just just met with broad indifference. Joe, Johnny asks, what does Johnny the, B. No, different Johnny. Why can't I have the gloves back? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, what What does the pod make of Ian Watmore's sudden departure? How much of it is related to the cancelled Pakistan tour and the struggles with confirming the Ashes tour? Um, Ian Watmore left his role at ECB uh, less than a year in this week. You interviewed him not that long ago. Yeah, and I was really impressed by him at that point and very hopeful that he would bring something to cricket that was much needed in kind of managing to find the centre ground at a time when... It was quite hard to see that ground with particularly around the hundred, both parts being kind of stretched to the limits. Um, so yeah, I, I was, I was sad to see him go. Um, again, we don't want to kind of end up speculating. The, the statement talked about his mental well-being and then that he'd found the, the job tough and perhaps more demanding than he was expecting. If that's how he feels, obviously he's got to go. I think you can, we could tie ourselves in knots making links to the, the Pakistan series. He certainly personally got a lot of criticism and he might, look back with regret that he didn't come out and speak sooner um, and may look back with regret that England didn't go um, but to say that those two things are, are, are linked I don't I don't know that would be that would be guesswork um, there's certainly been actually Phil was talking about a, a piece that Mike Atherton wrote which I haven't read yet saying that the, the meeting with the county chairman had, had been a hadn't, yeah, hadn't gone well yeah Atherton flagged that up De Bell did as well. I spoke to one or two other people who have been who were in that meeting, um, and yeah, it, it was it was a messy meeting, quite an incoherent meeting, I think. And then after that, there was a feeling among the among the, the, the county power brokers that it was probably best for all parties if if they shook hands on it and the door was offered to what more. And and I think he walked through it without without a moment's hesitation. I think it's been quite a scarring experience for him um and it was a peculiar appointment now looking back on in hindsight because and you spoke to him didn't you joe but you know he he hadn't held a position of high profile authority for nine years since 2012 he'd worked at the fa um for something like nine or ten months wasn't it i think ten months and i just pulled out that quote which i thought was interesting because I, I questioned him look you only last ten months in that role why won't you? Why won't we see the same thing again? Why won't you just leave the ECB after the same period of time? Which is obviously what has happened, uh, and he hasn't necessarily gone to a huge amount of detail. Why at that point, when I asked him about the FA, he said the problem was the governance of football was broken. Uh, as I said at the time to people, the board of the FA resembled Yugoslavia in the nineties. Well, is there an element too that 
the ECB perhaps isn't what he wanted it to be as, as an organisation and, and he feels that he can't do the things he wants to within it. That's why he left the FA after less than a year. We don't know if that's part of the reason why he's left the ECB so quickly too. But it, it's given everything that's gone on over the last few months. I don't think it's too much of a jump to, to kind of speculate that might have been a contributing factor. He, 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 he took on a monstrously difficult job at a very difficult time. You know, in the, in the guts of COVID, the money drain, the hundred postponed rolling through to, to this this summer, uh, redundancies. From what from what people have told me who know him better better than we do round here, and I've never met him by the way. Joe's interviewed him, and uh, but I've never met him. But someone who does know him relatively well um, in the journalism game, and they said to me that he uh, he was really done in by that. You know, even his um, least favoured people in the game still say he's a very decent straight up upstanding kind of bloke and I think having to step in to the shit show of last summer and make 62 people redundant um, and then of course there was the bonus scandal as well which was in place long before he was put in charge um, I've also heard that some of the other big power players in the ECB's top offices um, didn't necessarily take to his style of management or leadership that well so it can't have been a particularly smooth and cohesive working environment um uh yeah my instinct I, I kind of felt sorry for the bloke actually um but then to read other kind of bigger voices in the game they said and Afton wrote very sort of straightforwardly and sternly he's got to go he had to go you know He's, he's the top man in an organisation that looked greedy um, and arrogant and imperialistic and all the rest of it uh, through the Pakistan stuff. And he had no, no his position was untenable. Um, uh, but yeah, it, as I say, when that door was opened, he walked through it. And I, I don't think he's, I don't think he turned around for half a second. Mm, that is interesting. Um, thanks again for all your questions this week. Sorry, we don't have time to read them all out, but they are really all appreciated. Um, you can send them into podcast at wisdom.com. They don't have to be about the last week in cricket. They can be about anything vaguely cricket related. Um, ben, what's your moment of the week? Uh, my moment of the week was from uh, last night's IPL game uh, between Royal Challengers Bangalore and Kolkata Knight Riders. Um, the, the Noreen performance. This is the the Noreen performance it or Noreen performance. It was he he uh, basically, Sonal Noreen has had a very weird couple of years um, and has gone from, you know, obviously got called for, for chucking, banned out of the game, come back in, back to the peak of his profession, incredible player in the IPL, then has a massive dip in the last few years where suddenly everyone thinks he's, he's gone. And he suddenly starts, he's not turning the ball, he's not taking wickets, and he's going for runs, which for statistically the best run preserver ever in the game is mad. And, it's, and suddenly everyone's going, okay, well, he's finished. Because when a player that extreme goes off a cliff, you think that he's done. Was there like an accusation basically that post-chucking ban that he wasn't the same bowler? Yeah, I'd say that was and, a very and, strong and he, and, he w- and he wouldn't be the first bowler that's happened to. Well, exactly. It's a classic arc, isn't it? You know, you steal a march on everyone and then people call you and then you can't come back mm. the same player. But actually he's come back in and on these grubby, horrible wickets in the UAE, which are ragging and turning, he's ragging and turning it hugely and he's doing really, really, really well. And last night's performance where he basically plays the most perfect Sunil Narayan encapsulation of everything in his career, where he rags it square, gets Coley, gets Maxwell, gets A.B. de Villiers in a knockout game in the IPL, takes four wickets for Soddle runs, and then comes out and hits his first two balls for six and makes him, plays a match-winning cameo with the bat. And I was talking to um, I was talking to Matt Roller of Crick Info last night, and he was we were chatting it through, and 
I, ju- I just think that Narine, regardless of the context of this game and his own personal narrative, I think in some ways he sums up all about T20, both the good and the bad. It's the all-round skill of this maverick guy who has this extreme technique and this extreme ability. And as a result, this extreme record, you know, he'd run a ball for his entire career in a game where people are trying to whack you at the ground. He's also got this slight sense of being a bit of a mercenary and a bit of a, it's a bit, it doesn't feel that joyful. It feels a little bit, you know, with the deadpan face and no real, you know, extravaganza excitement every, when, when he's taking wickets. It's all very, a bit flat and it feels a bit for hire. And I don't, you know, he's, it's hard to, to warm to him. But at the same time, he exists at the absolute, you know, he is an epochal player, eking every inch out of his game in terms of suddenly becoming this incredibly versatile batsman as well. And so I just thought that it, it's, it was quite apt that in this one game, in a hugely important match against, you know, a star-studded batting lineup featuring the best batsman in the tournament in Maxwell, he stepped up again and showed exactly why he is considered, you know, statistically, cricket-wise, the best T20 player of all time. And it's just nice when you have one game, almost like a little museum piece of like that is the guy. And now KKR are through to the through to the uh, the next stage of the IPL and hope, you know, fingers crossed for Owen Morgan's sake, they're going to be lifting the trophy on Sunday afternoon. But he's not going to the T20 World Cup. No. On the grounds that he failed a fitness test. On the grounds that he didn't turn up for the fitness test, I think, is the, is the accusation. There's obviously going to be issues there in terms of his action as well, that actually the IPL is somewhat more lenient to, uh, to people who may be chucking. I'm not saying he is, but, you know. Well, he's, he's bowling in short sleeves now, so he's clearly he's, tr- he's trying to, uh, you know, make a statement. Um, but I think there is, a, there is a general sense that the ICC in their flagship tournament would not be quite so lenient. Um, and so there is an, there's an argument of that. And do you take that risk of taking a guy to the World Cup who gets called in his first game? Probably not. Do you take that risk if it's the best bowler in the world, potentially? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> so I'm, yeah, I'm very much on the, uh, on the fence about it, but I think that's why he's not going, regardless of whether it's a good decision or not. Mm, interesting. Yeah, I don't think we've really talked about it on the show, but there, there's a guy called Umran Malik. Uh, he's a 21-year-old playing for Sunrise Hyderabad who is already the fastest Indian bowler of all time. He's at 95 miles per hour in just his third professional game. Which is where, where's he been? Because uh, I haven't Kashmir. seen... Kashmir. Yeah. Is it? He's been, yeah, Kashmir and he's... Yeah. I, I guess there's not been as much domestic Indian cricket because of COVID. Yeah. So someone like him would have played a bit more before... And how uh, old is he? 21. Right. Um, he's going to make a lot of money. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, we've got an interview with Danny Morris. Have you not seen up. footage of him yet? I've seen footage, yeah. I just haven't read the backstory yet. He just yeah, looks a lot like Wackar, basically. Absolute gas. And also, it's exci- It's even more exciting because Sunrisers have been absolutely awful all season. Yeah. And the main reason is because their attack has no ball speed. And so, the, and they've just been, it's just been Sandeep Sharma and Booby banging it on a length. And all of a sudden, it's like, bam, fastest bowler in the competition and Indian history. But I don't understand. He, he would have been bowling that in the nets and they were doing so badly. He's like, why, why not give this guy a game when you're still in the competition? Yeah, I mean, may, maybe to like, Dislodge Booby and Sandy, who've got excellent IPL records, is mm. one thing. But if you know, if Sid calls getting a game over <laughs> this guy, he's not. It's not overseas. If he was an overseas, yeah. you'd get him in the side, and he's you know, he's a domestic player. Like just you, get you, him know, in you know, it's always one of those fun games. Who does that player look like? And you know, the more obscure the comparison, and also the more kind of vague the comparison, almost that proves your stripes in cricket. Hipster points, yeah. But yeah, all of that. Um, he looks so much like Wacker Eunice. It's actually creepy it's actually weird and i don't know if he's actively consciously modeled himself on him or not i don't know but and apparently there's now a split screen yeah. I think, yeah, yeah. on twitter or something or other but i saw him i saw some footage because ben Gardner said oh you got to see this kid obviously i didn't see the game live christ <laughs> um, 
And and I watched it, and before before the ball had even got down there, oh, it's Wacker, it's Wacker. And then I heard the commentary, and it's Danny Morrison. He said, oh yeah, it's Wacker. And e- yeah. everybody, it is, it's like a mirror image. It's extraordinary to see it. Yeah. There is no interpretation required on this one. It's just like watching Wackley. My, my nichest uh, comparison is, I think, Nassim Shah has got a very similar action to Martin Bicknell. Obviously, a very different, spe- <laughs> very different speeds. Um, but I think oh, we could have a hot look. Come the dark winter months when England are already 3-0 down, we could do a whole episode on this. <laughs> um, Joe, what's your moment of the week? Uh, so mine is from County Cricket. Um, and hey. the signing of uh, Sam Northeast by Glamorgan, which... Uh, He's had a funny old year, Northeast. Mm. He, he left Hampshire having fallen out with them. To be honest, I don't know exactly the reasons behind that. I'm actually interviewing him tomorrow, so I might have a bit more next week. Um, I think he played eight games for Hans, then ended up at Yorkshire for two games, then went to Notts for two games. And you're kind of thinking by the end of the season, he got a few runs for Notts. He probably just goes to Notts. Got dropped from their side, though, at the very, very end of the season when Hamid came back. From England duty, sure, but then Hamid will be playing for England. All being, well, I mean, or no, he might, might not, not be, do. but you yeah. know, they not often just hoover up those those kind of talented batters. Um, and then, yeah, press release comes through that he's he's gone to Glamorgan. Uh, I like the fact he said that the, the they won silverware was a big draw for him. You know, this is the one day cup that everyone's written off, and he's seeing them as a county who have actually won something recently. Um, he's, I think, he's thirty one. And he's obviously, he's he's the heir apparent to James Hildreth as, as the, the, why has he never played for England? And that's been going on for a few years now. Over the last couple of years, he just hasn't got the runs to be even in the conversation. I think he's averaging 27, 28 over the last two years. But uh, he will be continued to be the, that, that guy who's got 25 first-class hundreds. Why has he never got a go when so many other players who have got pretty poor records have, have got a go at some point? And there have certainly been times over the years when he's got, a lot of runs and he's not even made the Lions and you think what, what, why why doesn't the face fit on this one so it'll be interesting Glamorgan some would see it as right I'm focusing on county cricket England's behind me that's not what he said in his his initial kind of video that he still wants to go on and play uh, international level but uh, yeah I thought it was, a, it was kind of a heartening signing you just expect these players the big players of county cricket when they're available to end up going to a, a, a test match venue division one side and uh, yeah, it's a kind of mark of, of Glamorgan's ambition. Yeah, I think it was in the England Lions squad that went to Australia at the start of 2020, but then wasn't in that 55-man big one. Which yeah. was the killer, wasn't it? That yeah. was the, the sign that you are not wanted. Yeah, I, I think it's quite a smart move, actually. I think Sophia Gardens has been um, it's been a pretty good wicket to bat on recently. Kieran Carlson's got a lot of runs there. Obviously, Labuschagne got millions the year before. So it's a good wicket. Uh, if you've got a conference system in, in 2022, you're going to still play against the best counties. So I think it is a reasonably smart it'd be move interesting in to know term. It'd be interesting to know if that was part of the decision, that actually there is still access to that high-level prominent cricket. If you do nail it for six games or whatever it is, you can actually... Yeah. You, you can still make those those big incisions on the mm. on the domestic circuit. I think it'd be, it'd be interesting. You can completely see, like in terms of like simulate game stuff, you can see Northeast averaging 70 for most of next summer or averaging 80 and then everyone being like, get this guy in the side. It's, it, it feels so believable because he's got that that bank of runs. Was it the start of the 2019 season or 2018 when he broke his hand at the Oval? Yeah, I can't remember which. It was, it was yeah. one of the two and it was like, and that was when he was about to play and I was all over it and was so excited because his underlying numbers for years have been brilliant. And even when, even though his runs have dropped off, his underlying numbers are still really good. His control's still really good. So I think there's still a player there and I'd yeah, be lovely to have him back at the top of his game. Yeah, but, but, but he's also, he's, he's 31 year old. 
He's made twenty five hundreds in his whole career. He's been given. Well, he's probably he's played one hundred and eighty two first class matches. That's a lot of cricket to get to a point here when you're now playing for your fourth club, albeit only your third on a proper contract. Um, and why are we still obsessing over a, over a batsman who's never quite really cracked it? In truth, I'd re- I'd really take issue and with obsess for. <laughs> <laughs> at thirty one. But but he, he remains this 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 topic, you know, the Sam Northeast enigma. Is it because he made sixteen hundreds in a year for Harrow School when he was sixteen or something? I have never quite understood it. I really like watching him play, but I've never really got the sense that that a, a player who is pushing up to thirty odd warrants this kind of foundation. Uh, there are very, I, there I are very few players that have had that have had that Hildreth quality of why haven't they played for England? And also, part of the reason probably people are still obsessing over him is because he's probably not played for England. If he if he comes in for England, and he it's looks amazing fun, how good you are when you don't play for England. It's Tom Wesleyism, isn't it? It's like Wesley's like the the great lost talent, and then all of a sudden he plays a couple of tests, and you're like, yeah, he's yeah, good player, yeah. yeah. And then he goes away, and no Back one, you go. yeah, no one, no one really <laughs> cares. Yeah. And I, th- I think that makes quite a big. Difference. I, I think it also, is. also genuinely, I, I think. Um, he manages his media presence pretty well, doing the podcast with Vision Will. I think that helps because people know who know who he is. If he, if he's just you know ex not you know county cricketer three two six nine one doesn't really matter. But you know, pro- relatively prominent. But I think if also if you look at his numbers, they've just got his kind of first class averages by the season up here, and there are a lot of very good seasons which cause excitement, and then he'll have a couple which are rubbish. And then you lose a bit of that, and I think that's why if he just averaged thirty seven every year for the last ten years, there wouldn't have been that kind of excitement. When I think you that that kind of piques people's interest, you know, well, how is he able to do that and not play for England? Do you want to be Chris Dent, i.e., just very, very quite good for well, a long a good, time, or yeah. do you want to have those highs and those lows? It's a good it's a good comparison, and and Hildreth did it to an extent as well, where he had absolutely phenomenal years where it was almost inconceivable they hadn't got a chance of England. Um, mm. And people still talk about Hildreth, even though he's not made a run for three seasons now, really. Mm. I was wondering if, because of his move to Glamorgan, whether North East had played for the southernmost and westernmost counties. Jesus Christ, But not yes. quite, because Hove is marginally more southern than the Aegeus Bowl. Well, there's still time. There's yeah. still time. <laughs> still time. This is when you come alive, yes. <laughs> We've still got to talk about the World Cup. <laughs> like, yeah, wow, good um, point. My, my moment of the week, by the way, is Amy Hunter of Ireland becoming the youngest ever international mm, centurion. 16. 16th birthday. Yeah. So she scored a 100 for Ireland against Zimbabwe. Yeah, literally on her 16th birthday. So that's the fastest international 100 across formats, men's game, women's game. Um, yeah, that is that is the record. Um, so what what did you do on your on your sixteenth birthday? What on the actual birthday? On your actual birthday? Uh, oh God! Wow, I could tell you what happened that that summer of ninety six. Um, <laughs> that's the podcast that's a, special. That's a, that's a, that's a, <laughs> oh, the Isle of Wight festival. <laughs> and I'm not talking about music. <laughs> Excellent. Anyway, as mentioned earlier, this podcast if you know, you know. is in association with Las Who. Las Who gives fans the opportunity to book live video chats with an incredible roster of sports stars. Las Who is the new must-have app for any sports fan. One Las Who hero is Danny Morrison, who yes. I talked to yesterday. Hi, Danny. Great to have you on the show. We're recording this the morning after MS Stoney's 18 off 6 helped CSK qualify for the final in the last over against DC. Um, a lot of people, but possibly myself included, had written off Doney. Um, above... Anything else? How special a moment was that? Yes, well, it is. I mean, even saying so much being chatted about already um, on social media and everywhere that um, he uh, rolled back the years, didn't he? Rolled back the clock 
Um, I think we all think back to uh, that World Cup of uh, 2011 uh, when he nailed it and finished the game in similar style. Uh, he really is quite uh, exceptional. And like you said, so many people have probably written him off after such a difficult time last year. So, yeah, great to see. And, I, and I'm pleased for MS because he's, um, he is one of those greats. He really is a modern great. And I think he... I say life isn't fair, yes, is it? I mean, you say like he deserves to go out like this, but so many don't. Um, but good on him. I'm pleased he's um, writing another chapter. Mm. And I felt from the tournament point of view as well, the IPL needed something like this. The U- UAE leg um, has felt a little bit flat for me compared to what was the previous tournaments. What do you think the difference has been for CSK this season? They were the first team to be knocked out in 2020 and they were the first team to qualify for the final in 2021 got rid of that slack old Aussie, Shane Watson. <laughs> no. um, I think we all were quite agreeing, and, and I wasn't alone. Um, many of colleagues saying, look, um, you know, they're ageing. They're getting a bit long in the tooth, aren't they? And th- certainly with Shane Watson, he's moved on. We knew it was his last gig, uh, last time here in the UAE, that was IPL 13. So, um, and, and MSD himself, you know, by his own admission, didn't have a good time of it. Um, and I think all those combinations of aging guys, DJ Bravo, um, all of that sort of scenario, um, we all know you can't play forever. So I'm pleased for them. I, I've always been a fan of Donny. Of course we have. Um, just the way he conducts himself and how mellow he is. Um, he's this really quiet, achieving sort of um, rock star, if you like, of the modern era in terms of you know, T20. So, yeah, I just think, again, you know, they're, they're older guys. Sirius Rayner himself, too, you know, he hasn't played much either. So you can see where someone like Robin Utapa comes in. And I'm pleased for Robin Utapa, too, because he's of that ilk. You know, he's, he's getting on. Um, and some of the old guns doing it, mixing in with the, with the younger brigades. With um, Daikwad, isn't he exciting? And I think mm. that's just typical of India, producing yeah. more and more stars. Yeah, Gaikwad's been a revelation. I find it amazing how in such a high-quality league there are always a few relative unknowns who from nowhere are right up there with the most effective performers in the competition. Um, speaking of which, have you, have you seen much of Umran Malik, the, the Sunrisers youngster who's hitting 150 Ks? Well, exciting. I was on air uh, here in, in Abu Dhabi and he um, he really did excite. And a lot of us, you know, were on commentating about his run-up and stuff and, and making comparisons about the great Waka Yunus. Um, in terms of his balance and his, his approach was very waka. And then even his load up through the delivery, and I think we, we put that on Twitter and social media, um, that you know, a couple of guys even put split screens and showed both of them running in and delivering. And so uh, once again, yes, um, that's what this tournament's about, isn't it, too, to be fair. You, you're unearthing talent, and particularly for India, because it's their league, um, and you're going to get that guy quite there. And what about... Um, um, the Ayers, the two of them not related, but, you know, um, these guys are just poof, so mm. exceptional. I mean, look at Rishabh Punt's come through with that. Uh, Ishan Kishan, um, you know, he's shown recently what he can do. Um, you've got all these guys coming through um, that are just very, very exciting. Mm. Um, and obviously the T20 World Cup is just around the corner, taking place predominantly in the UAE. You're there right now. What, what can we expect from the pitches out there? Well, it's funny because we were here last year and Simon Dool and I were chatting about it in the Caribbean because India have picked a lot of spinners in their squad um, and you'd expect possibly the pitchers to get tired. But it is a neutral tournament in a way. It's supposed to be. I know it was supposed to be in India, 
Um, it's not. It's here. And if the pictures have got that tinge of green about them, which they need, and I know I think subcontinent fans get a bit freaked out, and even the players do. Subcontinental players go, oh, look at the green. Well, it's, it, it, I think it's so hard and dries out very quickly here, given that we are, you know, we're in the UAE, hello, um, that, you know, you have to have grass. And grass creates pace. It doesn't necessarily mean lots of sideways movement, like if you're playing at, you know, test matches in England or New Zealand in particular, those sort of conditions. It's not. Um, they're so hard. And the grass just adds as a bit of a, a canopy to make the ball slide on. And then we know spinners can still get grip off grass. So it's not impossible that. So I think you can get lulled into the false sense of security, particularly uh, we've seen that the paces, um, they're the ones who take most of the wickets. Even though the spinners have a say, they may not quite take as many wickets, but they still dominate because they go for less. The economy is so much more powerful. Um, and... I think, you know, be wary of, of surfaces where the, the pace men, if they're smart, and they are, lots of cutters, lots of changes, pace off the ball, tennis ball bounces that don't arrive, um, and then good Yorkers wide, and we know all the strategies. But um, I, I think, yeah, be careful. Charger, to me, yes, is, is a bit of a worry because it can be slick there, but it has been very mosaic, and, um, and it has been slow and tough to score decently past 160, 165. So, yeah, I mean, that looks like that's going to be more, you know, for the spinners and, and hard work for the batsmen. But um, the other ones, geez, Dubai and, and, and Abu Dhabi, it can be quite good for shot making. Uh, but it does rely on the ground stuff, and it'll be fascinating to see what they produce. The T20 World Cup kicks off this week. Um, I'm just going to run through the format because I don't think everyone will be that familiar with it. The first round consists of two groups of four. The Top two from each of those groups qualifies for the Super 12s, which are two groups of six. And the top two from those groups qualify for the semi-finals. And then you've got your final, etc. Um, Ireland captain Andrew Balburnie, after his side qualified for the first round of the World Cup in 2019, tweeted, thrilled to qualify for another qualifier, which I think sums up that part of the tournament pretty well. Group A's got Ireland, Namibia, Netherlands and Sri Lanka. Group B consists of Bangladesh, Oman, Papua New Guinea and Scotland. Uh, I'll just run through few of those teams quite quickly. Ireland aren't in great form. They've recently lost a series to UAE, who didn't qualify for the tournament. Namibia are doing very well. They've uh, they've won three games in a row. Um, before the show, I was looking up their overall T20I record. Um, they've only ever lost four T20Is and they played 22, which is good going. Um, ben, Ben, you wrote a preview of the tournament in the upcoming Wisdom Cricket Monthly and you, you, you like the Netherlands. Yeah, I think, well, I think it's just the fact that in that group, I think there's, there's some interesting stories. The Netherlands have got a very, very good all-round team. I think if you look at the, if you did a, like a combined 11 between them and Ireland, who are obviously also in that group, you'd probably only get, have a couple of Irish players in there. Probably Balboni, probably Sterling, obviously. Um, and then it may be, maybe little, but you're, you know, skimping at that point. They've got a really good side. So they're, they're the second best team in that group. They're arguably the best team in that group because Sri Lanka, as we know, are rubbish. So I think that, you could make a very reasonable case that the Netherlands are going to top that group, which would be really exciting. It's slightly unfortunate, I think, given the way that the ICC have, um, have st- structured the seedings, that even if the Netherlands go through as winners, they still essentially go through as in second two, place. Yeah. Basically, if, if Sri Lanka or Bangladesh qualify, they qualify as group winners into a particular group. Yeah, that's a bit of madness, that. I don't quite understand. I think ostensibly it's, it was so that the fans could go and so that it was easier to plan uh, for uh, for fans to go and 
to go and visit the games but obviously in this current environment that seems a little bit odd i don't re- i don't know the exact reason but it's it feels it's, it feels a bit jarring when i think there is a genuine story there in terms of ne- the netherlands could rock up and it would be it would be it would barely be a shock if they beat sri lanka they that they are they are that strong i think the um the other group is a little bit different in terms of bangladesh are a very good side the world ranked number six they are a proper team it's a bit weird that they're in that group and so the other three who are among them, uh, you know, they are going to be scrapping. It's going to be kind of three knockout games, basically. You know, if, you, if, Scott, if PNG turns Scotland over, they're right in amongst it again. So I think that's probably going to be a slightly less interesting group. But the Netherlands, yeah, they're the ones to watch, I think. Yeah, Group B is quite interesting because Bangladesh are so much stronger than the other three sides. And the, the other three guys are Scotland, PNG and Oman, uh, who, who are arguably weaker than all three of the teams that are in the other group so you're going to have one of those teams in the super 12s playing five games against the top sides in the world it's gonna be quite interesting um anyway moving on to the to the super 12s we should sorry just really quickly the the formats not for the next world cup the following world cup is the one which i think we all want which is four groups of uh, four groups of five so that i think that pretty much solves the 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 format issue this is a bit of a shonky you know cobbled together idea but proper you know football style four groups whoever wins goes through i think that that's better and hopefully we can yeah. get to that sooner rather than later anyway moving on to the super 12s in group one you've got australia england south africa west indies joe who, who, who are you picking to qualify from from those four plus the, the other two qualifiers I've been thinking about this a bit recently. I'm watching Morgan's travails at the IPL. <laughs> Livingston seeming to bat himself out of form. A slightly lopsided, well, actually quite a lopsided squad in terms of their bowling attack with with not enough spin. I think West Indies will beat England in the in their opener. And then England basically can't lose a game from that point in, probably. Uh, I'm watching Glenn Maxwell at the IPL. I, I, think, I do think England might miss out. I think... It just feel, it feels a bit like the energy is heading that way. And perhaps that's more my energy than England's. Um, but yeah, I, th- I, think, I think West Indies and Australia from that squad, uh, from that group. Do you think England got their squad composition wrong? They've only got two spinners, arguably. I mean, Moeen doesn't often bowl four overs in the IPL. Um, India have picked five. Owen Morgan's KKR side that's doing very well in the IPL. They've got three spinners in there, 11. Yeah, it's, it's weird, isn't it? Morgan's not having a good campaign personally, but the way he's managed his spinners has been really interesting. And KKR have been very, very extreme, using a lot of spin in the power play. I think more spin in the power play than any team ever in the IPL. They've really gone with that. And England could do that. You could bowl Moeen in the power play. They tried Rashid in the power play against India in the in the five-match series. So it, it is there. It's not out of the question. But then you've got Liam Livingston as your main spinner through the middle. If you because they haven't picked Parkinson or Liam Dawson or Jake Lintott or Mason Crane, they're a little, they are a bit lopsided, like you say. I think it leaves them a little bit short. Um, but I'm still a little, I'm a bit more optimistic than Joe. I, I think that whilst England are out of form, uh, the guys who, the guys who are at the IPL are out of form, but you've, got Josh Butler to come back in. You've got Jay, uh, Johnny Bairstow to come back in. I think both of those guys are world class, and I think that's that's pretty that's pretty straightforward. They will improve, uh, and they are good players who they can rely on to find form. Mark Wood is a guy who can devastate any attack, any any batting order in the world. I think the issue for England, the biggest loss, is obviously Joffre Archer. You have Joffre Archer in that side. Doesn't really matter what pitches you've got. Doesn't matter who you're coming up against. He's going to take two weeks with a new ball, and he's not going to concede a run. He's a genius. That's the biggest issue. The fact that they've lost Curran, Sam Curran, and Ben Stokes is a proper issue because it means they can't balance the side. They basically now need to either commit wholeheartedly to a batting-heavy strategy or to a really bowling-heavy strategy with someone like Chris Wokes at number seven, which makes me 
you know, gives me the heebie-jeebies a little bit. So you go batting heavy? I think I'd just about go batting heavy. I want I want to be able to be more creative with Moe and I want to have a bit of fun. I want to pick the, I want to, you know, have him floating up and down the order. But I think England pretty much just need to go back to, you know, Milan comes back in. They're a little bit more, just list your best batsman and then hope that the bowlers turn up. Because to be honest, I, I'm, I'm just nervous about England on those pitches. I think they need so much from Butler and Bairstow that they're not going to blast teams away in the way that they have in the past. It's going to come down to, can Jason Roy dominate in the power play on those these sticky pitches where scoring 60 in the power play and then backing it up with like, you know, 90 for the next 14 overs is quite common now. If Roy can get it go out and then Bear still and Butler can manage the middle overs and then whatever you get from Morgan is a, is a bit of a bonus. I, th- I think that's that's the way you go about it. But, but genuinely, it, it, it will feel like we're all sitting here, here thinking, you know, England, England are, you know, they're mucking this up here. It's all going the wrong way. And you're right, the energy does feel a little bit more 2015 World Cup than 2019 World Cup. But at the same time, you look at the other teams, Australia aren't very good. South Africa aren't very good. The West Indies are brilliant. If England's beat those two sides, which they should, maxi apart, I don't think there's too much to hurt them. And I would say, yeah, as a caveat to what I said, I think they are fortunate they're in the group they are. If they were in a group with India and Pakistan, I, I, I really wouldn't back them. As it stands, I think they're, you know, pro- it, it feels like a kind of 50-50 chance to me at this point, certainly that first West Indies game. Phil, we've talked a lot about Johnny Bairstow and Josh Butler recently. We, got, we had a question in um, about how much the media focuses on the Ashes when you've literally got a World Cup starting next week. Yeah. And, f- and for these players, Bairstow and Butler, as, as Ben says, they're absolutely essential to England's World, World Cup hopes. Um, they've got an absolutely enormous four months coming up. Career-defining in two formats, completely different. And we almost neglect how important that both of those are and almost take them for granted. Yeah, um, I think with this particular tournament, there's an element of the unknown with it. Uh, and I'm not just covering my back. <laughs> um, you know, if you speak to people, if you speak to friends um, about it, then they want to talk about the Ashes. They don't want to talk about the, the T20 World Cup. But what will happen with the T20 World Cup is that it will build like World Cups do in sport. Uh, it's hard to get excited about a tournament that that is out in the middle of nowhere and it's been cobbled together and it shouldn't even really be played there, but there's obvious reasons why it has to be. And then there's going to be this this bit at the beginning that will be fun, but broadly inconsequential to English cricket fans. And then you'll get there and then you'll play a handful of games and then it will start to build. And then by the end of it, everyone will be crowding round for the, for the final stages to see, see what's going to play out. And if England are going to pull it off, of course that will happen. But the thing with the ashes is that I don't really think it's a fair comparison because we, we know what that is and we know when it starts and we know what it's going to look like and we know how it's going to feel. So we can prepare ourselves for it. Whereas this tournament is, it's not yet developed a reputation, not yet developed its own identity. I think you're right. I've made this point on the podcast before. T20 is a completely, it's, it's taken completely differently in terms of like how seriously people take it now compared to the last World Cup in 2016. There have been, I think, six IPLs since the last World it's Cup. Even, even, the fact, even the fact that this one is called a World Cup and it's not a World T20, yeah. it's almost like it's graduated to being big boy cricket. It's been now. five years since... Bangalore 2016 there's another one next year and then it'll be every two years from there on in right I think that's a good thing I think that's necessary to establish international T20 cricket if it's going to be played at all then I I like it being every couple of years I think that fits for that format I've always been a bit ambivalent about international teams playing it because they play a hell of a lot of cricket anyway and it works so well domestically 
But if we are going to play it, and I think we should, and I think to have, you don't have to play that much of it in the, in the interim. It's not like you've got to tune up as an England T20 side. You come together for a couple of weeks before the big thing and you go out and play for every two years. I like that. I think it's, it's necessary for the format at played at international level. But going into this tournament, if we feel, or if p- the average punter feels a little bit unsure about how to feel about it, then that's entirely understandable. We're a week out of a very long summer that we've just, you know, we've just sweated, sweated buckets for. So it's understandable if people are kind of looking at it and not quite, um, not quite sure what it looks like yet. I think how that's, it feels. I think that's completely fair. And also I think it's, it's, it is underrated like how much, you know, I think the idea that you know, England announced the Ashes squad, that means that people are going to talk about that because that's, you know, it's journalists' jobs to cover what the news is. And that's the news is the England announced the Ashes squad. So, you know, just because they're not writing tactical pieces about, you know, whether or not Case Armour should be the Afghanistan squad or not. Someone's going to. Leave them all for me. I'm quite happy. I'll hover them up. But what I would say as well is I think it's quite interesting that in 2016, there was a big momentum behind T20. What It did feel like the first big proper tournament where people took it seriously. It wasn't just, oh, is that, is that on? It was... It was serious cricket, and so, but it also happened to be the moment when they extended it to four years. And by extending it to four years, it gave it a grandeur and it made it feel like this isn't you know we're not just doing. Do you this. keep it at four years? Well, I I don't really mind. I like it every two years because I like T Twenty cricket more than most other cricket. So I want to get more in there. But I also think that every four years feels a bit more like it's a cycle and you build towards it, and it means that you could have a couple of years where you don't play very much of it. So you could that in those years before the ODI World Cup, you have more ODIs and fewer T20s, and then you build up towards it. But again, like I don't really mind. But the point is, is that when they delayed it from two years to four years, they weren't expecting it to be five years. <laughs> so it's, it's it does feel like T20 has changed its identity in this time. You know, the PSL's been started, the BBL's cha- like expanded again. All these big structural changes. We've had the hundred, we've had the T10. These the game has changed. And the World Cup is a marker of that. It's a you know, it's a time when you kind of sit back and you reflect and think, yeah, shit, this is how far this you, game has come. Are you watching the Dubai T10 stuff yet? Have I'm you, not. I'm not that much have of a you pervert. Yourself into that particular gutter? No, I I leave that to uh, to Freddie to uh, to feed back my kind of sea facts. <laughs> <laughs> damning on Freddie. Yeah. There is a. I don't want to slag him off while he's not here, but equally. Um, <laughs> he, he, uh, he did send me a picture the other day of his, uh, of his double screen at home, which what, he had his laptop, he had the Pakistan T20 Cup on, and he had the IPL on. And I, he was the happiest I've ever seen him in his life. So okay. for those of us who are that obsessed with it all, this World Cup is very, very, very exciting. Um, quickly, on, on West Indies, you said that they're, they're an excellent side. To, to a T20 layman... You know, you look through their squad and you're kind of wondering where, where, who, who are their star bowlers. You've got Jason Holder and Sheldon Cottrell, who are two established internationals who are in the reserves. Uh, Ravi Rampal's back at 37. Yeah, <laughs> um, and uh, Obed McCoy, who I don't think people know a huge amount, is, is rated pretty highly. McCoy is really good. He is a really, really exciting player. And I think that he's the kind of guy who needs to turn up and have a, an above average tournament if the West Indies are going to go are going to go deep. Because as much as the batting is incredible, and I think w- because it's familiar, we skate over it. But it, they, it is absolutely absurd, the, the players that they have in that batting lineup. Particularly if, if Russell is fully fit and can balance I was going to say, is he, is he I th- likely I think, to be? I think he's likely to be fit to bat but not likely to be fit to bowl, which is, you know, Taylor's oldest time in the last few years. But I would say, I would say, yeah, McCoy's interesting. The issue is, and again, it comes back to Narine, is that I, I would say, I was saying yesterday, I don't think there's a bigger drop-off in terms of a player to the next best for their side in a particular role than Narine to the next best West Indies spinner. You know, Fabian Allen is a good, exciting player, but he's not a brilliant bowler. Um, Hayden Walsh Jr. is 
basically there because he's a wrist spinner, not really because he's any good. And so you, they are going to struggle. They're going to they're going to have to out hit teams. It's just that they probably do still have the batting lineup to do it. And Particularly then, now that Hetmeyer has found form in the IPL, Peran's you know on a dry spell a dry spell ever since I said he was going to be the best player in the world. He's absolutely shot through the floor. <laughs> but hopefully he can find a bit of form because he you know when you're surrounded by those geniuses, how can a bit of it not rub off on you? I think I still think they are. I, I think now they're second favourites on these pitches. I think they've jumped ahead of England because and, of and, and sorry, on, on those pitches, obviously you've been watching a lot of it. Uh, are they all going to be scrabbly, dirty things? No, or? It's, no, it's come back the other way. And I think they are... I mean, it's always hard to preempt this stuff because it was relayed just before the tournament. So who knows? It's, it's, it's a bit of an unknown. But what I would say is that it doesn't take very much to make Sharjah incredibly batting friendly because yeah. it's so small. Yeah, so tiny, even yeah. it doesn't need to be, you know, an absolute road. It can just be normal and suddenly it's 220 plays 220. Mm. So I'd say that's quite a significant thing. If one of the three ben- venues is sure. like that, Abu Dhabi is spinning, but also none of the pitches are really spinning, but it's offering help to spinners being a bit stop starty. And Dubai's, you know, play, basically playing like Dubai normally does. So I don't think it, they're not, they're not slag heaps. They're not horrible, but it's just that I think a lot of people expected it to be, you know, Chinnaswamy in Sharjah. It's not. It's, it's, it's and, a, that's and, the one that's the cause, cause for concern. And, and how many people can we expect through the doors to create a bit of atmosphere? Do you know? I, I actually don't know. That's probably, um, probably one for you. I think they've said that they, they've got, uh, 70%. I know I tried. I know I, I know I looked. I tried to buy a ticket for the final because I was I was trying to see if I could extend my stay, and I, I decided it was financially ruinous. Okay. So there's clearly got enough of an audience to be able yeah. to charge what they want. Um, anyway, group group two's got India, New Zealand, Pakistan, Afghanistan, and two qualifiers. Uh, Joe, you said y- you're glad that England aren't in a group with India and Pakistan. Pakistan are interesting. They've um, all their recent turmoil. That's generally how they roll. They'll, they'll probably do quite well. Um, but I thought when they came over to England early in the summer against a strong England team, they pushed England really, really, really hard uh, in, in English conditions. So you'd probably back them to, to qualify from that group alongside India. It feels like it's going that way, doesn't it? It feels like they've got, I mean, two absolute gun batters in, in Faber and um, Rizwan. That bowling attack's formidable anywhere, but particularly in UAE where they're so used to playing uh, well, some international cricket in the past, but particularly PSL, uh, it just looks well set up for them. Uh, and I think, I mean, India Pakistan is going to be one hell of a game. Uh, and I wouldn't be surprised if they then meet each other in the final after after that, which I think is what you predicted as well, isn't it? Is that what you? Oh no, runners up in the magazine. Yeah, okay. but that was that was about three weeks ago before I Lots realized changed, before yeah. before I realized that you know everything's changed. In the lifespan of T Twenty cricket, that's a long time. <laughs> um, I would say with Pakistan, it's a shame that they've made the changes to the squad that they've made. I think they've become slightly less exciting. Azam Khan is obviously such an extreme player, and you can you know is it, uh, is it Moeen's son? Yes, I think yeah, I think I think he is his son, and it's um, but he's. The, like the third fastest scorer against spin in history, he just stands there and whacks it, and he you know hits three out the hits three out the ground and then walks off. He's not a, a particularly old fashioned cricketer. He just gives it a whack, um, and he's been dropped out because he's inconsistent apparently. And so they've gone back to show with Malik. Uh, the year is still twenty twenty one. If you are checking, um, and then you've got you've got the the loss of Soeb Maksud. I think is a real shame. He's going to be injured for the World Cup, and he's you know been a PSL gun in terms of hitting sixes. And the one thing, whilst Babar and Rizwan are are excellent and will be very good, useful on those pitches to navigate and you know get through the early stages. They they lack a li- they they lacked a bit of firepower. Azam and, and Maxu did offer that, um, as did Kushtal Shah. And the fact that they've lost those guys is, I think, is a little bit of an it's issue. It's all about the Morrissey left arm seamer who opens the bowl in the Morrissey Shaheen, lookalike. Yeah. He's my favourite bowler out there. I think he's that's amazing. incredible. And well, I haven't been watching too closely of, of late. You do see stuff on 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 Twitter clips here and there, and he's he's just looking. 
sensational at the moment. I think the battle between... Is he the best? Is he the best T20 apart from Jofra? Is he the Jofra best? Jofra and Bumrah. And then after him, he's after them? Yeah, it's him. He's next. Because he's, the only issue is he's slightly more skewed to the new ball. Because he's, right. he's, he's super aggressive, but he's not. He, he can't come back in the middle and do what Bummer and Archer do. Um, but I would, yeah, I would say he's, he's definitely third best in the world. What I, what I'm so excited for. I mean, we talk about India, Pakistan, every tournament, obviously, really exciting. But specifically, Shaheen versus Rohit in that game, or Shaheen like that two over spell at the start while the ball is moving. That is, it won't necessarily just decide the game, but if you know, gets Rohit, gets Kohli next over, you know. The world's gonna, the, the roof's gonna come off. It's gonna be absolutely amazing. Like that is as micro battles go. Shaheen's as exciting as it comes, and stick him against India. It, it could be really, really special. Mm. That's how to get excited about cricket. <laughs> I just love it. I just love it. Um, there, there's a really good article, um, very informative piece on Wisdom.com by Rohit Shankar on Shoheb Malik. Um, it's basically just outline, outlining how weird his international <laughs> cricket, his international career has been. Uh, so he's one of uh, very few players who start their international careers in the 20th century. Um, I think in his debut test match, he was carded to about 10, but didn't but didn't get in. It was against Bangladesh. Um, and I think his last uh, test innings was a golden duck. His last ODI innings was a golden duck. But his, his last test series was uh, his first in like five or six years, and it featured a double hundred. This is the England series, UAE 2015, and also his career best figures of the ball. Um, so he's yeah, Mad a trick, wonderfully weird career. Um, Joe, I was looking through the New Zealand squad, and it's a bit underwhelming compared to New Zealand squad you, you're used to in recent major white ball tournaments. Dark horses. Dark <laughs> horses. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm not sure you can pull that one off anymore, though, can you? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, they've not got a great record in T20 World Cups or World T20s uh, previously anyway. I mean, it's the, their strength of their, is their seam attack, which, you know, might not necessarily be suited to the conditions hugely. I mean, the, the lack of a world-class spinner is is a problem. The, and the batting doesn't look explosive. It looks more functional. I, I suppose Glenn Phillips is probably the kind of the X-factor player who... Uh, certainly when we were doing our previews his T20 international record over the last year is phenomenal I think his strike rate is about 200 having had a kind of quite tricky start um, since he came in I don't know has, has he done well since he's gone back to the I, IPL I've, I've seen him doing ridiculous stuff in the field Glenn Phillips, Glenn Phillips. Yeah. Um, well he's only come in for a couple of games um, okay. for Livingston and no, he, did, he, he played one stinker of an innings as they were battered in the, in the last game by Mumbai um, and then they uh, yeah but mainly just flying from left of picture to, you know, to dive yeah, across the right he is amazing astonishing. <laughs> astonishing what I would say on New Zealand as well is I think it is a bit underwhelming and, and the two picks that I, I took issue with not, not not hugely I think Adam Milne being left out or being a travelling reserve for Tim Saudi is very odd Tim Saudi is not a good T20 bowler and Milne is you know one of the former players in the world or has been over the last year played a lot of cricket really effectively um, and I think yeah if you're looking for that little bit of firepower to hit some sixes early on Finn Allen would have been a really interesting go and I think that whilst he's up and down he's incredibly raw but like geez look at his record he hits so many sixes and he's so aggressive I would also say my main New Zealand take is just that we're talking about pitches one day I just want to have a whole World Cup played in New Zealand on those absolute roads where everything is 230 v 230 yeah. that will be like the, the ultimate neutrals like oh do you, do you you're not really watched cricket before just watch this it's just sixes for an hour be brilliant um very quickly Ben Afghanistan you giving them a chance to qualify um no, but I think they'll be the most exciting team to watch in the tournament. Um, I think uh, Gerbaz and Zaza at the top of the order is not, they're certainly not the best opening pair in the tournament, but maybe the most exciting, both incredibly attacking, but against pace and spin, go really, really hard all the time. Um, but then there's nothing in the middle order apart from Naby. 
and then all the all the spinners. I think it's a bit of a shame they've left Case Ahmed out because I think there was an opportunity with them using Rashid Khan at number seven, which they've started to do recently more. They could have picked all of them, i.e. Mujib, Nabi, Rashid, and Case. Back it up with a bit of Navi and Hack and maybe one of the seamers, either Shapo or something like that. There's definitely like a team there that could rip through sides. I tell you what, Australia will be absolutely over the moon that they're not in the same group as as, uh, as Afghanistan because they would have destroyed them <laughs> because not one of them can play spin apart from Maxi so they would have absolutely gone through them. I think I think they'll uh, they'll scare someone they'll probably be Pakistani or stop Pakistan going through because that would be a very Pakistan thing to happen yeah that is also but they'll true. be I, I I'll be watching them very eagerly um Joe there's a new magazine out this week what's in it um well there's the T20 World Cup preview yeah, a lot of that <laughs> a lot of that um you've got Ben who's written the intro to that you've got um team profiles you've got Mohammed Rizwan interview by Saj Sadiq which is interesting I mean he's had a, a fascinating career it's taken a long time to kind of be accepted in any format really uh, and his record in T20 this year is just phenomenal um we've got uh oh my interview with Kyron Pollard um which was yeah done a month or so ago and uh yeah he's he's one of, even though this interview was just done over zoom he is definitely one of those critters that just, you know, you speak to him and you know you're in the presence of someone who's a significant presence. Uh, and it's not often, often you, you interview critters who are unbelievable players and you start speaking to them and they're, and they're perhaps not the most, they're slight, maybe slightly underwhelming as, as characters. No chance of that with Pollard, who, who's got a, you know, a fascinating, unique story to tell. Doesn't hold back on West Indies cricket boards of old. Um uh, yeah, just uh, yeah, really. Uh, it was one of the most enjoyable inter- interviews I've done. I've done for a while. Uh, Phil, what else is in there? Help me out. Uh, Karunya Keshav, yes. the Indian writer, has written um, something masterful on Afghanistan, um, the recent history and the immediate future for Afghanistan cricket. Obviously, in in the context of what's happening in the country, um, she researched it beautifully spoke to people on the front line um and it's a re- it ends up becoming a really moving piece of work as well as a brilliant piece of journalism so that i can't recommend that enough it's one of the best things we've published i would say would you agree with that yeah it was really excellent i mean not a not an easy gig that we no, gave her at no. all and difficult to speak to the people that you want to speak to and yeah she did uh, an absolute bang up job as she always does um Nice interview with John Crawley by, by yeah, Jim, Jim Jim Wallace, who uh, you know fans of county cricket will no doubt be fans of John Crawley if they were watching in that era. One of the, the great players to watch at that time and had a funny England career in that there were uh, what four four or five Test centuries he hit four I reckon. No, I thought it was more than that. I thought it was five at least, okay. but maybe not. But he, he averaged good numbers by the end. But him and Fletcher. Or right, Fletcher just dismissed him. Just wasn't so that was like, yeah, something like he averaged 46 in his last 10 tests and then got drops. And Crawley, yeah, Crawley tells a, a, a nice story, or a, not a nice story from his point of view, of the moment where he realised that he just Fletcher didn't back him, didn't think he had the minerals for, to be a test test batter. Um, no, you're right, Joe, only four. Four. I hadn't realised his first class record was that good. Average oh, yeah, he's four, a four, proper, proper four, 46, player. 46, 5400. I mean, player. you couldn't say quite up there in the sort of Hick, Rambrakash, mm. lost talent kind of thing but but not far off given the numbers he, he put together for for Langston Hampshire mm. uh so that yeah that's that's it. and he's a he's a teacher now uh as well so that's an interesting look back at his career defining moments if you yeah could- our columnists have tried to tackle the so-called issues of the day um 
from the Pakistan debacle, England's arrogant no-show there. We've got Peter Oborn, who's a world authority on Pakistan cricket, to write with kind of righteous yet elegantly phrased fury on the issue. Uh, Andrew Miller tackles the thorny subject of the relationship between players and players' boards now in the context of player power. Um, and Adam Collins, who's back, he's, he's written about the Ashes phony war, phony, phony, phony war, however you want to put it. Um, and as I say, Karunia's covered off Afghanistan as well. So it's a kind and of we've issue. We've, we've got Lawrence Booth on uh, on the rise of T20 and its unintended consequences. You might might not like that one, Ben. I'll just <laughs> I'll just read mine again. <laughs> oh yeah, I'm sure you will. Uh, but yeah, they. As they say, yours and Lawrence has balanced each other out well. That was that was the intention. It's it's one of it's one of our better front covers, and we do do good front covers. Um, uh, and this one's a belter because. We, we scrapped around a bit, Joe and I, talking about how we should approach this particular issue because conventionally and in times past, big world tournament coming up, you go bells and whistles on that. But it felt like it's been such a kind of unhinged time for the game and discombobulatingly weird time for, the, for people following it and for us as fans that we had to try and... We decided to try and find a, a kind of a like a sort of dichotomy cover, if you like, you know, contrasting the positivity of a, of a world tournament. Let's all get stuck into that. And a recognition that down on planet Earth, there's a lot of stuff that needs to be addressed and sorted out. Um, and a lot of, you know, a lot of kind of negative stories around the game, unavoidably so. So we tried to, to settle upon a cover that reflected both of those worlds. You've seen it. Works. Well, it's good. It's good, isn't it? It's very, very that's good. A leading question. But yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. me. Imagine if I hated it. No, it's very, very good. I was. I was very. I'm, there you I'm, go. I'm, it's I'm, very, I'm, very. I'm, stick that on the bottom. It's very, very good. I often, I often say that the uh, the best employee of, of wisdom is is the designer. So of course, he has no idea how the process works. It's fine. It's fine. He doesn't know. <laughs> He's very good on Afghanistan's opening batters, though. So. I'm very. I'm just excited that I get my name on the front cover. It's yeah, the first time steady. that's ever happened. So. Steady. That was an early draft. Um, <laughs> also, sorry, I should also add. It feels like a long time ago already, but this is our uh, county review uh, as well. So we've gone through, basically reviewed all eight in counties seasons with a little bit of special attention paid to Warwickshire and Kent as as the big winners. For the, of the major silverware with loads of interviews in there as well so plenty for county fans even if you don't like the t20 stuff <laughs> lovely uh, as always you can get your magazine at wisdom.com forward slash shop that does sound like a really good magazine the way sounds longer than the that. almanac but it sounds great <laughs> Um, and, and finally, naturally, a plug for Justin Langer's LinkedIn account. Uh, he only started using this yesterday but it's fair to say it's been worth the wait. He's, he's posted two uh post in the last two days and i'm just going to read out the first one a wise man once said don't give them a taste of your own medicine if they lied let their medicine be honesty <laughs> if they played with your emotions let your medicine be maturity if they broke you let your medicine heal you if they made you cry let your medicine make them smile these remedies of yours may take years to work but they work and they last. So be patient. Stay true to yourself. <laughs> I can't do this. And, rem and remember this. It is better for people to value you for who you are, not who you pretend to be. Who you are lasts a lifetime. Who you pretend to be changes like the change of seasons. Don't be afraid to be yourself, even if it means removing yourself from lives you want to be in. 
You are, no doubt, worthy of being valued for who you are. So be who you are. The wise man says, be yourself. This is all in capitals, by the way. Be yourself. You are unique and you are special. Be happy, be healthy, be calm, be strong and be yourself. This was all posted with a photo of a man in a waistcoat puffing on a cigar, sitting on a leather armchair. It's probably like we made an AI read a thousand Jordan (laughs) Peterson books and here's what it came up with. (laughs) Really is extraordinary. There's another one in a similar vein that's been posted since then. I wonder if this is going to be a daily thing during the World Cup and the Ashes. We could do a Justin Langer final thought kind of stuff. Um, (laughs) Don't people only go on LinkedIn when they are looking for a new job? job? (laughs) It's not, even, it's not even a gag, is it? It's just yeah, so it's on just, the nose. Yeah. It's just ridiculous. Um, anyway, this podcast has been as, as nearly as long as the James Bond film. Um, but that is all we've got time for today. Uh, cheers, Joe. Cheers, Ben. Cheers, Phil. This has been the Wizarding Cricket Weekly Podcast in association with Lasso. We'll be back next week. Cheers. Podcast Network.